It's always really good. I was telling the first services too. It's always really good when you all say good morning back because it's super awkward if you don't. So I appreciate that. Uh, this morning, we will continue through 2 Peter chapter 2. So go on ahead and find your place in your Bible for 2 Peter chapter 2. We'll be spending most of our time there this morning. We will also be looking at other passages of Scripture as well to help us unpack the truth in 2 Peter. Those references can be found in the sermon notes, and those notes can be found on the TCBC app. Um, also, I'd like to take this time to invite you to jump into our uh, family reading plan of Second Peter. As a church family, we are going through Second Peter together, and uh, we have a reading plan for that that you can find in the app or out these doors on the table. We would love for you to jump in and join us. Uh, Second Peter is a short book. It's a short letter. So even if you haven't started it, you can jump in and you can catch up very quickly. So please, we invite you to do that. Uh, before we open up God's Word this morning, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, you are good. Lord, you are worthy of all the praise of all people, of all nations, Lord, because you are supreme. You are the author of life. You are the author of truth. Lord, please be with us this morning to handle your truth rightly. Lord, and please use your truth to shape our lives. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things, and amen. So it's, it's awesome that we get to be here this morning to gather together to worship the one true God. Amen? We get to sing songs of praise to him. We get to open up his word. Do you ever pause or do I pause often enough to think about why we do that? Why do we gather on a Sunday morning? Why do we sing the songs that we sing? That God is a sure foundation. Why do we sing songs at all? Why do we teach from the Bible? Why do we spend teaching from God's word? Why not teach from something else? Why do we do any of these things? Here's the answer. We gather together on a Sunday morning because God is worthy. God is worthy of the praise and glory. He is worthy of the praise that we sing to him. He is supreme. He is the creator. God is true and he's also the author of all truth. And we teach from the Bible because it's God's word. And because God is true, his word is true. The psalmist wrote, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The Apostle Paul reminded Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's word is true, and his truth is meant to shape our lives. And because God's word is true, God takes his word seriously. And because God takes his word seriously, he commands that no one pervert it. God said through Moses in Deuteronomy, You shall not add to the word that I command you, 
nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. And in chapter 12, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Today's big truth that we will be unpacking in 2 Peter is that God takes his word seriously. Let me give you an illustration of this. Think about the parent and child dynamic, right? So depending on which end of that you're on, you'll know what I'm talking about. But as a parent, any time that you instruct your child or you discipline your child, do you ever feel the need to tag, and I mean it, at the end of it, you do because you're laughing because you know. Like, don't you do that and I mean it. Don't you touch your sister. I mean it. I said that yesterday. Right? And in my house, it looks a lot like this. Listen, I ain't playing. <laughs> do not continue to do that or it will not go well with you. And I promise. And I leave it at that. And my kids know that I mean business. And as parents, we say things like that in those words, in those tones, because we mean business and we want our kids to know we mean business. Because we know that they have a high propensity to not take us serious when we say things. But it's important for us that they understand what we are saying. But listen, it's more important for them to understand what I'm saying. And that we mean business. There's something else that I say to my kids often, and I'm just as sincere about it when I say it. It's when I tell them I love them. When I tell my kids I love them, they know that I mean it. I try to make a point to tell my kids that I love them multiple times a day. Because I don't want them to forget that their daddy loves them. And my kids know that even though I stay busy most of the time, if they need something, they can come to their daddy. If they're in trouble, they can come to their dad. If they have a question about what's right or wrong or true, they can come to their dad and their dad will open up this book and show them. They know that their dad loves them. And church, hear me when I say this, because I mean it. When it comes to loving my children, I ain't playing. I love my children. Here's the point. Like a parent who's sincere about what they say to their children, God is sincere what he says to us in his word. He is not playing games. He is always sincere in all that he says and all that he does. And God also takes his word seriously. And because God takes his word seriously, he warns against anyone who would defile his word. He says through Moses in Deuteronomy, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet, shall die. In Proverbs, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Paul writes in Galatians, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Listen, church, God's not messing around. He's not mincing words. He means what he says. 
He even goes so far to say that when it comes to someone teaching his word and instructing through his word, he says through James that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Listen, as one of your pastors, I will be held accountable for how I handled God's word when I deliver it to you. And that is not just true of me. It is true of anyone who will attempt to teach from this book. Because God takes his truth seriously, he warns against anyone who would defile it. And as we continue through our study of 2 Peter this morning, we're going to continue to read Peter's warnings regarding the false teachers that infiltrated the church. And we're going to do a little review of last Sunday from Pastor Daniel's sermon from uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And then we're also going to see what 4 through 16 also has to say about this. So if we think back to last week, last week we focused on the proximity, the activity, and the danger of false teaching. We focused on the proximity, the activity, and the danger of false teaching. And the proximity of false teaching is this. False teaching is among us. There are false teachers in the church. Peter writes in chapter 2, verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Notice, false teachers can secretly bring in destructive heresies because they were considered to be a part of the church. It was easy for them to do this under the radar. Verse 13, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. These false teachers were in the church. They were taking the Lord's Supper. Just like we take the cracker and the juice, they were doing the same thing. They looked like the rest of the church. They were considered part of the church. They had taken the membership class. They had filled out the membership card. They got the t-shirt. And this isn't a new warning that Peter's given us. This warning is riddled throughout Scripture. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Luke writes in Acts, And from among your own cells will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Jude writes, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Church, notice the language used here to describe how the false teachers look like the rest of the church. Jesus says they're in sheep's clothing. They look like the church. They were among ourselves. They disguise themselves. They have crept in unnoticed. And Peter is warning his readers about the false teachers that are within the church. So I have one big ask of you this morning. When you hear Peter warning about false teachers in the church, don't be tempted to think about the people out there. Peter's not talking about the people out there. He's talking about the people here. He's talking about the people 
in the church. You may be asking, well, aren't there false teachers outside the church? Absolutely. 100%. But you know what is more dangerous than someone who openly professes opposition to Jesus Christ? It's someone in the church who professes to be a Christ follower, who professes to be teaching the word of God, is in fact spreading lies about Jesus. Way more dangerous. So when you hear Paul's warning, or Peter's warning about false teachers, it's not out there. Don't think about out there. Think about in here. Think about in our culture. Think about in your circles. Think about in your family. Think about the possibility of false teachers in this room. And if you're teaching falsely, this warning is also to you. False teaching is among us. There are false teachers among the church. And here's their activity. False teaching falsely proclaims the will of God. Peter says that they deny Christ in their teaching and their behavior... He says in verse 2, even that they even deny the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. They may have claimed that Jesus redeemed him through his blood, that he bought them on the cross. But they did not abide in his grace, a grace that would empower them to live a life of repentance and pursue holiness. They continue to live as if like they had never been redeemed. They continue to live in unrepentant sin. And they taught others to do the same thing. These may even be the same ones that Jesus spoke of in Luke 8.13 when he said, And the ones on the rock are those, when they heard the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time and testing fall away. Church, the false teacher through their actions and their words, they proclaimed that you could follow Jesus Christ without living a life of repentance. They perverted God's grace and used grace as a license to sin. Peter says that they will even deny the second coming of Jesus Christ. He writes in chapter 3, verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This is the point. The false teacher says, get yours today. Live it up today. One of two things is happening. Either Jesus isn't coming back or it's so far off you don't even have to sweat it. Don't think about it. Do what you want today. You've got time to figure it out. And with boldness and arrogance, false teachers teach about the things that they do not understand. Chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Boldful and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming, about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage of their wrongdoing. Let me ask you this morning, is there anything in God's word that you don't understand? 
Everybody, there should be like, yes, that's me, right? There's things you don't understand, there's things I don't understand. But woe to us if we try to teach them like we understand it. Don't be arrogant. Because with boldness and arrogance, false teachers teach about the things that they don't understand. And their sin is the foundation and motivation for their teaching. Their lust for sexual sin and greedy gain. Peter writes in verse 14, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice steady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Jude writes, Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Notice those words that they rely on their dreams. Let me say it a different way. They follow their heart. They let their heart be their guide. And they teach others to do the same. Does that sound familiar? And false teachers, they prey on those in the church who are immature and weak in their faith. Peter writes that they entice unsteady souls. Paul writes in Romans, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They come after those who do not have a firm foundation in God's word. And because those don't have a firm foundation in God's word, they don't know deception when they see it. But they're quick to follow it. The false teacher falsely proclaims the will of God. Here's the danger. False teaching is destructive. False teaching is destructive. Chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says, And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. False teachers bring destruction to themselves and to those who will follow them. That was true of Peter's day and is true of our day today. John MacArthur writes this, Never has Peter's warning been more timely than it is today. The rapid advancement of mass media, coupled with the church's lack of discernment, has allowed doctrinal error to spread like wildfire. False teachers propagate their heresies via television, radio, the internet, books, magazines, and seminars, doing whatever they can for their own self-promotion. To make matters worse, some in today's church, motivated by cowardly fear of rejection or misguided notions of love, are reluctant to expose today's apostates. Instead of countering error, they either embrace it or ignore it in the name of tolerance. The late R.C. Sproul said it this way, We are living in perhaps the most anti-intellectual period in the history of Christendom. Not anti-academic or anti-scientific, but anti-mind. I doubt if there has ever been a time in church history when professing Christians have been less concerned about doctrine than they are in our day. We hear almost daily that doctrine does not matter, that Christianity is a relationship, not a creed. 
There is not simply indifference towards doctrine, but outright hostility, which is increasingly dangerous and lamentable. We cannot do even a cursory reading of the Word of God without seeing the enormous emphasis accorded to doctrine, and that unsound doctrine and false teaching are not merely errors and abstraction, but are profoundly destructive in the life of the people of God. Church, I'm going to be really gut-level honest with you. As one of your pastors, how John MacArthur and the late R.C. Sproul describe the situation of the church today burdens me. And it doesn't burden me for the church out there. It does, but not like it burdens me for the church here. I mourn and I lament over the indifference we often have towards God's word. I mourn and I lament over the lack of zeal that we have to teach our kids rightly how to handle the word of God. We'll train our kids and other people with zeal on all kinds of things in life, but how much time and how much care do we have about sharing the truth of God's word and teaching and instructing how to properly handle it? Let me put it to you in a different way. In East Tennessee, Buddy, we care about our guns, right? All right? I knew I'd get somebody here saying, right? We care about our guns. We like to hunt. We like to go to the range and do target practice. We like to have them for home security, right? And we train others how to rightly operate that gun, how to handle it safely. Why? Because guns can be dangerous. So we want to learn how to do it safely. How do you load it? How do you unload it? How do you point it down range? My kids are never close to, even nowhere close to handling a gun right now. They can't not look at a Nerf gun like straight in the barrel, right? I ain't giving them a real gun. But we care about those things. How often with the same zeal do we teach our kids how to handle God's sword, his word? How often do we train our kids how to handle God's word to teach others and to be able to identify false teaching when they hear it? You see, church, we get all hot and bothered when somebody talks about taking our gun rights away because we, have, we fear the danger of what may happen if they do. What about home protection? What about wars? Yes, all of those things are true concerns. I'm not trying to downplay that, okay? But there's a greater danger than a war. There's a greater danger than somebody breaking into my house at night. It's false teaching. And am I training my kids to handle the word of God properly and how to use it. Woe to us if we do not because the false teaching is a real and present danger. And there are churches that are not safe. There are preachers who do not proclaim the truth of God's word. There are sermons that seem more like pep talks about self-esteem and neutral thinking than they are about the true gospel of Jesus Christ. They proclaim hope where there is no hope and peace where there is no peace. And if we don't know rightly false teaching when we see it, you know what we're tempted to do? We're tempted to take what we heard, that tweetable statement that just sounded so good, and share it with others in our conversations, and our social media posts. And then we become the person who proclaims peace where there is no peace. 
False teaching is dangerous because if someone in the church of the West, listen, our greatest danger is not persecution. Our greatest danger is to becoming an apostate by following false teaching. That's a greater danger for the church in the West than persecution. That's why Peter writes in chapter 3, 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. False teaching is real and present danger. Let me remind you of the big truth that we're unpacking this morning. God takes his word seriously. Because he takes his word seriously, God promises judgment for false teachers and those who will follow them. Beginning in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. And they, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked... For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Listen. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise of authority. Real quick. Peter gives us three examples of God's judgment on the unrighteous. He gives us an example of the fallen angels, the unrighteous world in the days of Noah, and the nations of Sodom and Gomorrah. First example, he punished the angels who despised God's authority. God punished those angels who despised his authority. Now, biblical scholars have debated on this about which angels he's talking about. And to be honest, you can do that study on your own, but it really doesn't matter. Don't miss the main point Peter is making. Peter is saying, listen, if God did not spare angels who are much mightier than human beings when they despise the authority of God, the false teacher is not safe. God will punish them too. Second example, the unrighteous who lived during the days of Noah. And read in Genesis 6 that only Noah and his family were spared. The rest of the inhabitants of the world, because of their utter wickedness, were swept away. Listen, if God is willing to destroy all of the inhabitants in the entire world, except for eight people because of their wickedness, he will judge those who teach falsely and those who follow them. Third example, God's judgment of the nations of Sodom and Gomorrah. We can read in Genesis 19 that Moses wrote that because of the sexual sin that existed throughout all of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from heaven. And Peter uses this example to warn those of his day that the same would happen to them if they followed false teaching or taught false teaching. 
Jesus himself used the same examples of the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to warn God's people that sudden destruction would happen to those in unrepentant sin. Jesus says in Luke, speaking of the coming of his kingdom, he says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. And on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Church, just like these three examples of God's judgment, God promises judgment for false teachers and those who would follow them. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 12. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and, despite, and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Listen. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. God's future judgment of the false teacher and those who follow them is certain because God has consistently judged the wicked throughout all of history. Paul is saying that the false teachers will reap what they sow, that they are bringing destruction upon themselves. God promises judgment for false teachers and those who follow them. Church, it doesn't get any plainer than that. God ain't playing. He's not mincing words. He means what he says. And God has proven countless times in the past that he does not overlook evil. And Peter promises that God will not overlook evil in the future either. But even in doing so, God demonstrates his patience in order to allow time for the wicked to repent. Peter writes in chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God promises to rescue those who trust in his word and follow Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That's all of us. We need Jesus. And Peter gives two examples of God's rescue of the righteous, his rescue of Noah and his rescue of Lot. We see that he rescued Noah because of Noah faithfully demonstrated his trust in the Lord, even though literally the entire world around him was corrupt and wicked, says Noah continued to proclaim the truth of God's word. It didn't earn his salvation. It just showed that he trusted in the Lord. God rescued Lot, and Lot demonstrated his righteousness not because he was a perfect guy, and to be honest with you, read a lot about Lot, he was kind of a knucklehead. But, Lot showed his righteousness in the fact that he did not jump in with the sin of the folks in Sodom. And he, in fact, he was actually grieved and tormented in his heart because of the sin around him. 
Again, didn't earn his salvation, but it was fruit of it. Church, are you grieved and tormented by the sin around you? Are you grieved and tormented by the sin in your own heart? Are you grieved when you hear false teaching? Or are you indifferent? The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. When he says trials, he means temptations to sin. Temptation to fall away. God knows how to rescue us from the greatest danger we face. The temptation of false teaching. God knows how to preserve his people till the end. How does he do this? That's a big question. How does he do it? Jesus is the answer. God rescues the righteous through the work and person of Jesus Christ. If you want to see a picture of God's hatred towards sin and his love for you, look at the cross. If you want to see his wrath and direct opposition towards sin and how true he, how serious he takes his word, but also his power and efficacy of his love, look at the cross. We have the pictures of Noah being saved you know, even though there was a flood, we have Lot being rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah. But you want even a greater picture of that, a more clear picture of that? Look at the cross. If you are in this room and you don't know Jesus, or you are the false teacher and you posted something this morning at 8 o'clock, you can repent of your sins because Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself on the cross. When, Jesus, when the Lord says he hates sin and he hates when people defile his word, Look at the cross. It demonstrates that. But when God is serious and he doesn't mince words when he says he loves you, look at the cross. He loved you that much. Church, hear me this morning. Peter's reminding us that deliverance and destruction are fast approaching. Peter leaves no doubt about the future. For unbelievers, destruction is certain. God ain't playing. But he gives you a way to be rescued, not on your own merit, but through the grace he gives us through Jesus Christ. If you're an unbeliever, if you've never placed saving faith in Jesus Christ and repented of your sins, I personally invite you to do that today. God's grace is powerful enough to forgive you of any sin you've ever committed Turn from that sin and run towards Jesus. Be rescued by Jesus. If that's you this morning, after this service, go out to the doors to the left, an area we call the hub. We would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. For believers in this room, understand that deliverance is coming. We don't know the day, we don't know the hour, but it is coming. And because God takes his word seriously, listen, as Christ followers, we must also take God's word seriously. How do we do that? One way is we hold fast to God's truth. Paul writes to Titus, he says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine 
and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You want to be able to teach properly and handle God's word properly? Hold on to God's truth. You want to be able to identify false teaching when it comes up? Hold on to God's truth. Second, be alert for false teaching. Jesus says to be aware of the false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing. A false teacher is not going to come to you and peddle and say, listen, i got some false teaching for you. Come get it. No. They're going to say it's the words of Jesus. They're going to come in secretly. You've got to be aware. You've got to be alert. Be alert for false teaching. Also, we cannot be indifferent to false teaching. Listen. We cannot be indifferent to false teaching. We must refute false teaching and proclaim the truth to one another. Paul writes in Titus, it says, They, the false teacher, they must be silenced. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain and what they ought not to teach. Listen. Judgment is coming to those who deny Jesus Christ. It is the most heartless thing you or I can do not to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to them. It is the most heartless thing we can do not to refute a false teacher. And that has tremendous implications and pressure for us as parents, for us as friends, for us as church members. We cannot turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to false teaching. We cannot prioritize our earthly relationships over God's truth. We can't do that. Finally, I'll ask the team to come up and I'll close with this. As believers, we must trust in God's promises. God promises us in Revelation 3.10, He says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth Christ is coming back I don't care what you've done there's no sin too great for the grace that God gives us in Jesus Christ if you repent and believe in Jesus Christ if you become a Jesus follower the way scripture defines it you will be rescued. And you can hang on to the promise that he will do everything in your life on this side of eternity to cause you to become more like Jesus. Any trial you're going through or any circumstances, he promises to use that to have you become more like Jesus. And he promises to rescue you at the end of the world. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, church. Maybe you're grieving over false teaching. You're grieving over sin. Trust in the Lord. Trust in his promises. Follow Jesus and know that if you are in Christ, you can never be separated from his love. If you'll pray with me, 
I'll pray scripture over us. And I believe Pastor Paul is going to come up here and lead us through the Lord's Supper. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we know that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed in your word. And we know that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Lord, may we realize what we have in your word. Lord, may we do our best to present ourselves as one approved and a worker who has no need to be ashamed. May we demonstrate Christ's likeness. Lord, may we rightly handle the truth of your word. Lord, your word is true. You are the author of truth. Lord, please use your word to shape our lives, to convict us of our sin. Lord, please call us to become more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.